opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Checkup. The team is excited to all be here and to share this 60 minutes of your precious holiday time on this Wednesday. We hope everyone is well and is ready to talk to Jack from Social Security Administration. Um, Jay, how are you today? I'm very good. And I've, I've listened to this gentleman before, and he presents very good information. Jack Burns is a public affairs specialist from Tucson, Arizona, but the information that he's going to give will be good for the United States. Wonderful. And Darrow, how are you today? Oh, I am well, Terry, and I'm very anxious to hear Jack's presentation because I know that I've filled a lot of questions in anticipation of this show. So a lot of people have asked me, so there should be a lot of people listening. Wonderful. Wonderful. We appreciate everyone listening on ACB radio. And thank you, Dan, for being our host to make sure everyone stays muted for we can all hear Jack's presentation, who will be also showing a PowerPoint presentation. But at this time, I would like to say, Jack, it is all yours. And everyone, please stay muted until we're done. And we'll take questions if we run over the airtime of 60 minutes. Do not worry. Um, thank you to Tyson. We have ex extra time to chat. We just only have 60 minutes for airtime today. So Jack, why don't you go ahead and tell us how it's been working for the government for the last 20 years? Well, thank you so much for the invite today and, and for the uh, connection to your audience and those that are listening in. I appreciate it very much. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Right up against the holidays here. This couldn't be a better way to end my week before the holidays. Uh, how has it been working for the federal government? It's really been a blessing, and, I, and in so many ways, but particularly for me personally, um, to work with the Social Security Disability Program has just given me insight into um, how those that enter the workforce and, and live with different uh, varying types of disabilities, um, how their lives look. And they come to us uh, for support. Sometimes they have already come to us and they're retiring after uh, working a career with a disability. And there's just so many different perspectives that my job has allowed me to have that I wouldn't have had. I can't imagine I would have had had I done another job um, and, and not had this opportunity. So, so I'm going to go ahead and um, with, with that, thank you for the intro, Jay. And um, Jay and I met at a conference called V-Rate, which is, I understand we've got callers from uh, throughout the nation here on the call. So uh, I'm going to just say quickly, the V-Rate is the um, visual uh, technology expo that we have here in Arizona every year. And it's just been a fantastic uh, expo and chance to meet folks uh, every year now for the last about six years of the 20 years I've spent at Social Security. Um, I, I look forward to it every year. So I look forward to it again next year, usually in the November timeframe. So um, what I usually do at that conference, and, and Jay mentioned that he's, he heard me there, and that's how we connected for today to arrange today, is uh, what I usually tell people about is a little bit of background about Social Security and what those disability programs are. And then we'll go into um, what it looks like if you choose to work and uh, receive those benefits and, and how the work will ultimately affect your benefits. So 
starting off here, the intro slide always mentions Social Security's life perspective. And Social Security is a program for most of us, whether we engage with it or not, um, is something that's with us throughout life because we'll have a Social Security number generally early in life. And then that Social Security number becomes our account and it follows us. Whether we engage in Social Security for a benefit or not, if we're working, we're probably paying the Social Security tax, part of FICA, on our wages. So um, those benefits are kind of there in the background if we don't utilize them, but they'll certainly, for most of us, be there later in life if we're going to retire. Um, so just to, to give you an idea of what I'd like to talk about here over the next 50 minutes or so is um, a little bit of the news and updates about Social Security services, just to give you a perspective on, on how we operate uh, during the pandemic here, how we are operating. But then, as, as I mentioned, we'll talk about the uh, disability programs themselves, some of the services that are specifically for those that may have visual impairments or blindness, and then we'll talk about the what they call work incentives. That's the Social Security term that's been used for the last, oh boy, 30 years or so here um, when we refer to what will Social Security allow for you to re, uh, continue to receive benefits and work. And retirement benefits I put there because I, I have very few conversations about Social Security with folks uh, without that coming up. There's usually a question about retirement. So we will certainly um, take questions there along those lines. But just to give you a kind of a high-level perspective of Social Security, there's about 65 million Americans today receiving the benefits. And um, not all of those benefits are retirement benefits. About 70% are retirement benefits. The rest of the benefits are, are benefits for uh, family members of those that receive retirement or disability, uh, survivor benefits, and of course the disability benefits as well are in, in the rest of that portion there, that 30% roughly. Uh, but you can see that people, when we talk about elderly beneficiaries, 65 and older, uh, those folks that are not married are very likely to rely on their Social Security benefit as a major part of their income. And in many cases, millions of Americans receive Social Security in those elder years, and that's their only income. Uh, so important safety net, that was what Social Security was designed to do um, when it was signed into law, the Social Security Act in 1935, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, it was designed to help elders in, in, uh, in their later years of life after they've retired to have some foundation or, or safety net so that they won't slip into poverty. And it continues to be, if you see these numbers here um, that talk about unmarried individuals relying on Social Security for um, about 45% of the unmarried Social Security beneficiaries in their elder years rely on Social Security for 90% or more of their income. So it continues to be that safety net um, type of program for many elders in our community. So let's talk a little bit about the services that are available during the pandemic. So if you're not um, up on Social Security, just don't engage that much or haven't over time, you're not familiar with it as a service, Social Security has an office usually in most communities throughout the nation. We have over 1,300 public, what we call field offices or service offices, if you will, um, that are open nine to five, Monday through Friday when it's not a holiday. Federal holidays, they'll be closed, of course. But that face-to-face, uh, -face, if you will, or in-person service was kind of a, a hallmark of our service uh, throughout the nation for so many years. Uh, during the pandemic, since March, we just haven't been able to offer that face-to-face, in-person service. But we remained in place in terms of offering the service by telephone. Uh, and of course, we have a lot of services on our website if you're able to get online and, and look at a, a 
registering for your online account. But that telephone service would, um, throughout the pandemic, would remain there during those same hours, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, uh, so that people could engage with their local office um, and get any service they normally would have gotten in person prior to the pandemic. So we feel as though we've kept things in place uh, to some degree. While we can't see people in most cases in person, we've, we've uh, kept that telephone service there. If you're, if you're online, at the bottom of our homepage, there's a uh, contact us link that will go to a web page. Uh, the web address for the web page is www.ssa.gov forward slash locator. I'll repeat that so that uh, if you need to connect with your local office, you'll be able to find the local office, www.ssa.gov forward slash locator, the word locator spelled out, L-O-C-A-T-O-R. And, and if you put your zip code, your mailing zip code in that office locator tool, you can find the direct number, telephone number to your local office so that you could engage with a representative. Um, and that is the preferred way, the recommended way to get any type of service from Social Security right now during the pandemic when unfortunately Social Security can't receive in-person visits, uh, but the same office hours and days are observed, as I mentioned, so that you could connect. Hopefully, if you needed a service through the local office and staff is on hand taking those calls. I'm told 99% of the calls are being received um, and, and service has continued throughout the pandemic, thankfully. So that's a little update on the service, along with updates, uh, maybe not big news, because um, I'm willing to bet that someone on this call today is, has gotten a call from someone alleging to be from Social Security. And we're here to tell you that those folks are generally not from Social Security. If you get a phone call, the likelihood is it's a scam. Uh, and I'm here just to confirm that if you've heard that and gotten some of these calls. Generally, this is a recorded voice that will come on once you answer the call and say this is Social, the Social Security Administration calling you to tell you there's a problem with uh, your Social Security number or account or it's been suspended. You need to cooperate here. We need information from you, personal information, or maybe we need a payment from you. There'll be a, a series of instructions if you stay on the call long enough that will ask you to cooperate and provide some type of information or payment. And the call may get threatening, may make demands of you. And just to be clear, nothing that I've just mentioned about that type of phone call has anything to do with the Social Security Administration because we do not contact you unless you have contacted us for some type of service and we're returning the call. So just to be clear, we know these calls are continuing. Our Office of Investigator General has prosecuted a number of these individuals, um, but unfortunately, the calls do persist. I get them myself. I work for the Social Security Administration and I'm getting these calls regularly. It's annoying. I can't say that it's the only call I get regularly that's annoying, that's unwanted, but it's certainly one of them. It's on the list. So just be aware. There's no reason why you would take a call from someone from Social Security unless you had contacted us for a service and you were expecting us to, to get back to you. That's the situation where you would be expecting that call. So hang up. Don't take any, uh, don't take any bull from these people. Don't give them any information. And you're, you're certainly welcome to report it to Social Security on our website right at the top there's a link that says report a telephone scam and there's a, a an actual report that you could give the number that you were 
that the call came from. If you were uh, if you were faced with one of these scams, and, and you could even put some brief uh, description about what the nature of the call was. So, those of you that are online, if you get to socialsecurity.gov, or it's even shorter, it's SSA for Social Security Administration.gov. Just know that you have a an account there. If you're 18 years of age or older and you have a valid social security number and you, you can provide an email and mailing address, well, you should be able to register for an online account. And it's called the My Social Security account. And I can't stress the importance of this account enough. Uh, first of all, it is not a requirement. There's no penalty or adverse effect on you if you don't register for this online account. But certainly, if you're able to, it will be very convenient for you because you'll have access to a number of services uh, without having to make a phone call to reach someone at Social Security. So I think the, the greatest importance of this that I would mention this online account is you have access to your Social Security account statement. And that's something that um, if we roll the, the clock back maybe three, let's call it four years now, there was a mailed statement that all workers would receive from Social Security starting at about the age of 26. And that statement was, a, was an overview of all the work that the worker had done, uh, all the earnings from work that they had done and paid the Social Security tax on. So the employer reports that to IRS and Social Security so that Social Security can calculate benefits for that worker when they're uh, ready to engage and receive a benefit. So the, just to be clear, the account statement from Social Security is no longer mailed to workers if they're under the age of 60. And the statement is, is very important because a worker is responsible to review that and make sure that all of those work earnings on which the Social Security tax was paid are accurate so that Social Security can, can accurately calculate their benefit when it's time to receive a benefit. And an inaccurate statement um, that's never corrected uh, will mean, in many cases, an inaccurate benefit, sometimes an underpayment of benefits, which we don't want. We want to be able to help someone correct their record if they see that there's an inaccuracy there in that statement. So um, getting that statement from us in one form or another, it doesn't have to be the online account, doesn't have to be in the mail, it can be uh, just reviewing it with us over the telephone. That's certainly a way to ensure that the benefit is accurate that you're receiving uh, or your future benefit will be accurate. And this uh, online account, uh, again, ssa.gov is where you would go to get to the Social Security website. And you would go uh, to towards the top of the page. It's right below the link to the information we offer on COVID-19. And it says My Social Security. There's a logo there that has, um, I guess, kind of a, a, a graphic of a person clicking on a link to get to an account. But at any rate, if, if you're able to register for this account, and not everyone is, simply it's so secure and the requirements to, to get access to the account are secure enough that we simply um, prevent some people, uh, unintentionally, we prevent some people from being able to register because their information that they enter to register just doesn't match what Social Security has on the other end of that. And that, I think in a sense, that's a good thing. It's secure in that way. I myself, when I went to register for this account several years back, I, I couldn't register. I had to call a colleague of mine on our service line and say, can you help me uh, establish my account? And I finally was able to. But at any rate, I think the point here is that if you're able to register, you'll have access to a number of services, and let me just mention a few. 
Um, if, if you're able to go into your My Social Security account, there is a retirement calculator there where you can calculate an estimate of your benefit. Um, there's a Social Security card replacement service in your account. You can go in and check the status of an application or appeal, even Medicare enrollment. If you're enrolling in Medicare and you want to know the result of your request, you could go in and check the status of that. You can get an application, um, excuse me, you can get a verification letter or an award letter of your benefits if you wanted to get that information to provide someone to prove uh, accurate numbers of how much your benefit is and when it started and things along those lines. Um, and of course, your your statement, your Social Security statement that shows all those years you paid the Social Security tax on your work earnings and contributed to your different benefits. Um, that's also part of your account. And I would say, um, in general, I think when we opened the call uh, just a little while ago, we talked about the fact that it's common that there are folks on this type of meeting that already receive or have received Social Security. So the benefit of having this account is there for you as well, because you can do a number of things, get a number of services if you're able to uh, log into your account. And those services could be pretty important. They could be things along the lines of just making an, a mailing address change. Um, I know after V-Rate, I had a person contacting me um, that was asking to get a benefit verification letter from Social Security. And they, they need, in order to do that, they had to change their mailing address. So that's something that you could do right in your account. Um, and of course, change banks for direct deposit of your benefit, replace a Medicare card, get an annual statement of benefits for income tax purposes, a number of services there. One of the big ones, um, when we talk to folks that receive benefits that are receiving a disability payment, is there is a way, once you've contacted Social Security to let them know that you're working and who the employer is and what your, your work plan is, how many hours, et cetera, there is a way you can go into your My Social Security account online and you can report the wages on an ongoing basis to keep Social Security updated on how much you're earning from that employment. So that's very, um, I would consider <laughs> very much more convenient way to report things to Social Security. We still have piles of pay stubs from people getting benefits and working, piling up on, on desks in our offices, and, and that's still a reality. But this is a much more uh, I would say modern and convenient way to do it if you're able to. Again, it's not a requirement. It's just a convenience. I want people to be aware of it. Um, and so I want to get into a little bit about the transitioning here from the online services, news about Social Security and how our services look. But I want to talk about the uh, disability program. So Social Security in a nutshell has um, disability insurance for those that have worked and paid the Social Security tax on their earnings. Typically, we have um, an insurance there, disability insurance. So we call that SSDI, and there are a number of uh, work requirements there. You had to have generally worked five out of the last 10 years and paid that Social Security tax, meaning if you stopped working for more than 10 years, you may no longer have that disability insurance. So what would you do in a case like that, or what would Social Security be able to do for you in a case like that? Well, if you had very limited income and resources, um, and you were eligible for programs like Medicaid, um, maybe even food stamps or those uh, low income and resource type programs. There's another uh, more, uh, more of a public assistance type of disability program that Social Security handles called SSI, Supplemental Security Income. And that is a uh, distinct, distinctly different program from SSDI, where you had worked, paid the Social Security tax, and had more of an insurance whereas the SSI, Supplemental Security Income, 
doesn't require any work history at all. So we could have an individual that never entered the workforce be eligible for that program. But of course, that SSI program is going to require that you meet certain income and resource requirements. You have to be below a certain threshold. So two distinct programs. If you say, uh, I need uh, help with my SSI benefits, and you were talking about SSDI, don't worry. Social Security representatives will understand you. But it is sometimes good to have just a clear idea of the two distinct programs that are offered at Social Security. Now, in terms of what makes you uh, eligible in terms of a, any type of a disability, a disabling condition, well, there is one and only one definition for disability at Social Security for an adult, and that is uh, the inability to engage in what's called substantial gainful activity, or SGA. If you get Social Security benefits and you've ever returned to work, I would bet you probably know that term or have heard it, but substantial gainful activity uh, is is what Social Security considers a, a level of work that makes you, in general, no longer considered disabled. So you have to be able to, uh, in the in the application process, Social Security has has to uh, define your disability as the inability to engage in substantial gainful activity because of a medically determined physical or mental impairment that will last for 12 months or longer, or result in death. And of course, result in death is just a small group of those that get social security disability because many, many uh, disabling conditions are not terminal. So we're paying benefits for long periods of time to folks that are just not able to return to work due to a disabled uh, disability uh, or disabling condition. So that's the definition. Um, the definition of blindness, just for your information, if this, inf if this info can help you, um, if you're considering filing for a disability benefit with social security is Vision can't be corrected to better than 2,200 in the better eye, or if your visual field is 20 degrees or less in your better eye for a period that is expected to last at least 12 months or longer. So you'll notice that I put a little emphasis, or at least I tried to in the tone of my voice, on the word expected. And the importance or the emphasis I put on that word is because some people think that the 12-month period has to have elapsed before they file for disability with Social Security. And that's clearly not a requirement. The diagnosis or prognosis uh, would hopefully include information from a medical provider that said the condition was expected to last for 12 months or longer. But certainly, as soon as someone knows that their condition is going to last 12 months or longer and keep them from doing substantial work, they would want to be contacting Social Security and going through that application process. So. We'll get back to um, the benefits in a moment, but I wanted to just briefly review some of the services or service options, we might say, because service is the same, whether you have blindness uh, or whether you have a, a visual impairment or whether you have uh, a heart condition or a renal condition, the services are, are the same, um, but the options that you have for those services could be different if you choose them to be different uh, for for situations where you may have blindness or visual impairment. So here are some of the different services Social Security would offer you if you chose them, um, if you needed them. And of course, the standard notice that goes out to someone is um, standard notice, first class mail, but then you could request certified mail. You could request the notice to be followed by a phone call where a representative would uh, read through the information, hopefully clarify anything. And then there's a Braille notice option that would also include standard notice. There's a Word file 
that would include a compact disc, audio compact disc. I feel a little strange saying compact disc, CD. I don't see those things around too often anymore, although um, I'm old enough where I have a whole library of them, I think. But uh, at any rate, that's uh, another option. And, and then the last option could include some of the prior ones, previous ones that I mentioned, but there's also an 18-point large print notice option. And I've, I've seen those go out of our offices. Um, it's pretty, pretty neat how they offer all of these different options if they're helpful. So just to give you an idea of some of those uh, services, another thing that you may want to be aware of just to kind of put in the, if you're not uh, nearing retirement yet, but just to kind of put in your, in your file cabinet, so to speak, is the disability freeze calculation that can be offered to someone that has had lower work earnings uh, because of blindness. Specifically, if Social Security has, um, has made a determination that you have uh, met those, you have met the requirements for the blindness definition, your blindness meets that 2200 um, definition that I mentioned there of blindness, you can request that Social Security uh, calculate your retirement benefit using something called a disability freeze calculation. And disability freeze refers to not using a period of employment where your earnings were lower because of blindness. And, and in doing that, they will see whether that calculation will offer a higher benef- uh, retirement benefit uh, payment. So this, this can be, uh, in, at, in some cases, to your advantage. Again, if you had lower earnings years because of blindness and you're now looking at a retirement benefit with Social Security, we would be able to do the standard retirement benefit calculation and see what that amount is to be paid to you and then compare that to the um, disability freeze is the term we use, where we would not consider lower years of work due to blindness and see if that calculation could offer a higher benefit. And, and if it does, certainly Social Security is, is there to pay the higher benefit to someone. And, and that's the reason for that disability freeze. Now, let's see. Um, if we talk about working and receiving disability benefits, so changing gears here again a little bit, uh, changing the topic to uh, someone that receives a Social Security disability benefit, and they decide they want to return to work. And in, in this situation, one, one thing I want to start with here is I'm going to go back to that term SGA, substantial gainful activity. Substantial gainful activity refers to an amount that you could earn and still receive a Social Security disability payment. Exceeding that amount with your work earnings would, in most cases, with some exceptions, which we'll get into, but in most cases, that would mean you were no longer considered disabled and you may not be due that payment. So that's uh, a critical number to know if you're returning to work and receiving Social Security disability benefits. And that number this year in 2020, and it's about to go up in a couple of weeks here when we get into the new year, but that number right now is $1,260 gross wages uh, per month. So that uh, someone earning above that amount, if they were applying for Social Security disability, or they had already worked uh, for a period of nine months, we call it a trial work period, and they wanted to continue to receive benefits, they may no longer be eligible for those benefits if they were earning more than $1,260 gross wages per month. Now, here's the important thing to understand. If you're receiving Social Security disability benefits due to blindness, 
you uh, the rules allow you to earn as much as two thousand one hundred and ten dollars per month gross wages um, if you have been determined to meet the definition of blindness with Social Security. So that's quite a bit more than the average disabled worker would be able to uh, earn and and receive their Social Security payment each month. So two thousand one hundred and ten dollars gross wages per month at that level or less without exceeding that number, of course, that would allow you to, for an indefinite period of time, continue to receive Social Security disability benefits, provided you continue to meet the medical definition of disability. So that's, um, again, getting back to that substantial gainful activity. Now, when we talk about work incentives, these are situations where you may be allowed to earn more than those SGA, substantial gainful activity numbers I just provided, the 1260 for non-blind individuals and the $2,110 for those that have blindness by Social Security's definition. These work incentives allow you to do work and, and have a work income to provide you, obviously, uh, more economic uh, independence and, um, and also allow you to, I guess we could say, test your ability to work with that disability and with those disability benefits in place. So that's the idea of work incentives when we use that term at Social Security. So they're designed to help beneficiaries enter and, or maybe re-enter and then stay in the workforce by protecting their eligibility for the cash benefits and healthcare because Medicare is going to be part of your Social Security disability benefit after 24 months. Um, or if you receive that SSI benefit, that, that low income and resource, more of a public assistance disability payment, Medicaid is generally going to go along with that. It allows you to keep those things in place uh, while you enter, re-enter, and stay in the workplace if that's what you choose. So to understand the work incentives, again, just to, to uh, reiterate that substantial gainful activity, SGA, that is going to be uh, key to whether or not your benefits are paid for the long term if you decide to work and continue to work and want to retain those monthly Social Security checks. So um, you'll hear me refer to that uh, throughout this uh, discussion on work incentives. So Social Security Disability Insurance um, and the SSI program have the following um, work incentives they're considered or um, supports that will be there for you if you decide to pursue and enter the workforce, pursue work and enter the workforce. There are subsidies and special conditions. Um, there's something called an unsuccessful work attempt where your benefits would continue if you tried for a short period of time to enter the workforce and, and you weren't successful because of your disability, you had to stop again. Um, Impairment-related work expenses is another one of the um, expenses that you may have out of pocket that would allow you to deduct those expenses from the wages you're earning to maybe bring them down to a level where you're eligible for the Social Security benefit payment. Uh, maybe you were earning more than that uh, SGA amount, but uh, if you report to Social Security that you have out-of-pocket expenses, then you can, uh, in many cases, uh, use those to deduct from your wages and bring your wages down to a lower level. Ticket to Work is a whole program in itself um, that involves access to employer networks that employ individuals that have disabilities and agree to. That's part of their function in the community, uh, along with a lot of other job training resources and job services. So 
we'll just briefly touch on that. And then there's even an expedited, long-term expedited reinstatement of your benefit that would allow you to um, receive benefits from Social Security, even after they may have stopped for a long period of time due to your work earnings being higher than is allowed. So I'm going to frame this whole discussion with uh, a number of years. Nine years is the entire eligibility period. Once you've received a Social Security disability benefit, there's a nine-year period that you could be eligible to receive benefits, even if you had returned to work at higher levels of earnings that had stopped your payments. You could still be eligible again to start receiving your Social Security disability payment without having to refile a new application. They would start your benefit as, as immediate as possible, and many times it's within 30 days. I, I would say that's um, our service goal is to start that payment within 30 days, and I think it happens the majority of cases um, there are always some exceptions, but at any rate, the nine year period, you could call a safety net that would allow you to enter the workforce, try out the employment to see whether you can, uh, continue it given your disabling condition and in the, the other obstacles that may be there. Uh, and then you, if, if your work was successful after a period of time, then your benefits would not be payable. Uh, but then if you had to stop that employment again for the same reasons that you received the benefit initially, then they could start the payment right up again quickly without having to go through the application process again that you went through initially. So uh, let me go through these briefly, but one at a time. The, the first one that I wanted to talk about when we talk about employment supports or work incentives is the subsidy and special condition. Now, subsidy essentially is where you're working with an employer that realizes that you have a disabling condition and they're going to allow you to do a job, but not require you to do all of the duties that normally would go along with that job because they realize that you may, you simply may not be able to. Um, and so they're going to pay you a salary for a position and allow you to do fewer than 100% of the duties that position normally would require. Um, of someone that didn't have your disabling condition, let's say. So in that case, we would consider that as a subsidy. The employer is paying the full salary, but you're only doing a percentage of the job. And therefore, we may be able to count only a percentage of your wages that you're paid. So if you're paid $1,000 a week, but you're really only performing about 80% of the duties of the job and the employer confirms that with Social Security, we may be able to only count $800 that you earned, even though you actually earned the full $1,000 that particular week. So that's just a quick example of how that might work. Now, it's really important to be in contact with Social Security and giving them the information about the employer. And, and, uh, and, and that has to be an exchange of information that takes place for Social Security to be able to determine a subsidy. There also could be something called a special condition with the employer, which would mean there's some type of on-the-job assistance from another employee or someone else at the place of employment that will um, pick up a percentage of the job duties of the disabled individual to allow them to do the full scope of the job. But the person that's receiving the disability payment from Social Security really, again, is not doing 100% of the duties on the job. So therefore, Social Security may be able to count a smaller percentage of what they're earning. So these can be important in certain situations where you might be earning just beyond that SGA, substantial gainful activity amount, where your benefit would not be paid, but given the subsidy or special condition and the percentage there, if that's implemented, 
your your countable wages are under that SGA amount and your benefit could be paid. So these these may or may not be important depending on the situation. The other um, employment support or work incentive that we refer to it as here at Social Security is the impairment-related work expense. So an impairment, I think we could probably just say the word disabling condition there. Whatever the disabling condition is that the person uh, receives the benefit for, if we consider that, are there expenses that are out-of-pocket expenses that are needed to uh, do the job, are needed to be spent to do the job? And if so, can Social Security identify those and get uh, some, some evidence of what those expenses are? whether they're receipts or um, some type of voucher or, or some type of uh, uh, proof that the expense was paid and it's an out-of-pocket expense, those also may be able to be uh, deducted from the wages of that disabled worker. So again, this could be critical if you're in a situation where you're making slightly more than that SGA amount and your benefit would not have been payable but considering the out-of-pocket expense that you have that you need to pay in order to uh, do the job, and it's related to the disabling condition, uh, that may bring you down to a level where your benefit is payable. And so, again, this, this might be critical depending on the situation. Some examples of impairment-related work expenses, if you're familiar with this because maybe you uh, know a little bit about Social Security, you received benefits and you've looked at this information, well, these may sound familiar, but I think a one that I've seen in my career at Social Security quite a bit um, is prescription medicine co-payments. So if you need to take prescription medicine, um, co-payments are out-of-pocket expenses that we incur when we need to buy medicines that we need in order to be healthy enough to perform a job. So that could be um, one of the more common examples, but there may be others. Uh, expenses that are out-of-pocket related to a service animal or medical devices, uh, maybe even um, things along the lines of attendant care. I know a gentleman who's been one of the most ex inspiring people in my social security career that's here in the community uh, of Arizona that um, has a number of uh, home attendant care services that he really needs and relies on to just prepare for his work day. And those, uh, some of those are out-of-pocket expenses that are not covered. So we're able to uh, deduct those from his wages. And he's a full-time professional, so he has a fairly high salary. But after all of the expenses that he must pay out of pocket, he's, uh, his, his uh, actual countable wages uh, related to his benefits are low enough where we can still pay benefits. So that's, that's really critical in his situation because he can receive his salary and the Social Security payments. So the, the way that Social Security receives this information, this is key, is a report on paper um, from the disabled beneficiary. So the person getting the benefit or their representative, maybe this is, there are scenarios where someone could have a representative helping them with their, um, with their Social Security benefits. And this doesn't have to be uh, directly from the person while there's a place for a signature on the report. Uh, the information could be completed by a third party and then the person can submit it the beneficiary that is, but beneficiary is going to report. I have this employment with this employment, excuse me. I have this employment with this employer. I work this many hours a week on average. This is my rate of pay. Uh, this is when I started specifically, or I stopped because a start or stop of employment is something very important to communicate with social security. Uh, and then maybe even more importantly, there's a section of this work activity report. It's called 
form SSA-821. That's the form, and it is available on the form repository on the Social Security website, by the way. But this report, there's a key section of it where it talks about the nature of the employment. Does the employer offer some type of um, situation where the person doesn't have to do 100% of the job duties? Is there assistance on the job where there are certain things that they, they, they get help doing so they're really not performing those duties? So possibly Social Security can use that information to count a, only a percentage of their pay, and it won't be 100% of their wage that's counted against their benefits. So this can, be, again, it can be a very important piece if you're working and you're earning not very far over that SGA number that we, we, we talked about, uh, and it would bring that number down to a level where you could continue to receive benefits. Another work incentive, if we want to use that term, or employment support is the Ticket to Work program, uh, and this is for Social Security beneficiaries. So if you're uh, eligible for Social Security payments, generally you're going to be eligible for these services, and the Ticket to Work program has a long history. Um, Going back into the 90s where you would get a ticket in the mail, a, a paper ticket, physical ticket, and you would use that to show to an employer so they understood that you had a disabling condition and that uh, you were going to be given certain opportunities and, and uh, supports throughout the employment. Um, that's no longer a requirement that you have a paper ticket. So the Ticket to Work program, while we continue to use the name, um, we don't require that a, a person have a particular uh, ticket or uh, designation to return to work. If they're getting Social Security disability, they're able to generally have access to things like uh, vocational rehabilitation, job training services, um, uh, job services where you can apply for jobs within an employer network, a network of employers that will hire folks that have disabling conditions and, and they're aware of it and they're welcome to it. So um, I think the Ticket to Work program, again, is a uh, it's a free and voluntary service. It doesn't require that you have that paper ticket. If you want to participate in work, you're going to have access to uh, these types of services just because of the fact that you are eligible for that Social Security disability payment. Um, and if you're looking for more resources on Ticket to Work, if you go to socialsecurity.gov, and again, uh, anywhere where I'm saying Social Security, I could also just say ssa.gov, and then it's forward slash work. And you're going to have um, that section of our website that offers a lot more information. If if you're uh, if you prefer to just jot a number down, well, it's one eight six six your ticket spelled out, uh, or one eight six six nine six eight seven eight four two. And again, you've got um, the ticket to work program is going to give you access to job services, whether it be training, uh, employers that are hiring, things along those lines. And you'll also be going through a series of employment supports with the Social Security Administration, because as you enter the workforce, you will have things like a trial work period. <coughs> so this is the last piece of the information. As I'm looking down, it's 1246, and I wanted to leave about 10 minutes or so for uh, questions. So let me just review this briefly, and then we can go to questions. But when you return to work for the first time after getting Social Security disability, you'll have a trial work period. Trial work period means that you can work and have unlimited an unlimited level of earnings from that work for a nine-month period. Um, and unless you earn at least $910 gross per month, it won't count as a trial work period month. 
So that while the trial work period is nine months, it can go on a lot longer than that if you don't earn at least $910 for nine months within a five-year period. So let's just say you go back to work, and this is my standard example of when I only have a few minutes to speak with someone just to give them an understanding of how this works. You've got a full-time job waiting for you, and you're going to go try it out for the first time. You've just uh, you've received Social Security disability for a period of time. You can go 12 months at full-time work, full salary, regardless of what that salary is. There's no limit to how much it could be. You could receive your benefits for the first year from Social Security with that type of employment. So there's a nine-month trial work period, and three additional months, your benefit is payable at any level of salary. So that's a full year. We'll call it the trial work period, a nine-month period, but it truly is a full year that you could receive benefits from Social Security and work in a full-time position. Um, After the trial work period, there's a three-year extended period of eligibility where depending on how high your earnings are, you may or may not be due a payment from Social Security. And this is where it's critical to be in communication with Social Security to avoid overpayment of benefits. Because if they have to do this uh, retroactively, determine whether or not you were payable a benefit within this three-year extended period of eligibility, well, there may be uh, a, a cause for you to have to repay uh, or pay back money to Social Security. And that can be a hardship for people in, in, in a number of different circumstances. So the extended period of eligibility is a three-year period after that first nine-year trial work period, if you went through it and had to work. And this means that you can receive a payment from Social Security generally if you are under that substantial gainful activity amount or to be accurate at it or under it. But if you're over the substantial gainful activity amount, remember our amounts again right now, uh, until 2021 anyway, are $1,260 gross a month. Or if you were determined to have blindness from Social Security, then that goes up to $2,110 a month. If you're over the amounts, then your payment is not technically due during that extended period of eligibility. And there is a three-month grace period. But rather than get into all those details, I try to just keep it uh, at a general level so people understand how it works. Now, you could be in and out of jobs during that three-year extended period of uh, eligibility, and your benefits can be paid some months when you're not earning substantial gainful activity and not payable if you're at a a level of employment that doesn't allow the payment. So that is a a period of eligibility, but not necessarily payment of benefits, depending on what your work looks like. So that's uh, so far, we've got a one-year period with the nine-month trial work period where you would get all benefits regardless of your salary. And you've got a three-year period after that where you could get payments depending on what your work looks like, your level of earnings are. And then you've got, after that time period, you've also got what's called a and if you're following the slides, I'm, I'm moving through them kind of quickly because I don't want to get caught up in too much detail here. I'd rather have time for your questions. There's a period called expedited reinstatement. So you have those first four years, if you're following along with me here, trial work period is nine months, three more months of benefits, even if you're working full time, another three years where you're eligible for a benefit if your earnings are uh, under that substantial gainful activity amount. And then you've got another five-year period if your benefits stopped due to work during the extended period of eligibility, where you would be able to request um, from a Social Security office that they start your payments again because of the same disabling condition with no new application. So they would start the payments right away. They would need to do a medical review, but you would be getting benefits while they were doing that. 
Uh, and that's, again, that's called expedited reinstatement. So if we do the math, we have one year, all benefits, three years, maybe benefits if you're working and your earnings are low enough or you had to stop during that period. And then another five years beyond that, the expedited reinstatement of your benefit if the benefits stop due to your work. So you've got nine years. There's the nine-year safety net I started with at the beginning of this discussion, where your benefits are available when you need them. If you're trying your work out and the work um, is successful for periods of time, your benefits are not payable. Uh, but if you're not able to continue with the work, then they are payable. So that's the safety net I mentioned. Now, throughout a 93-month period after your trial work period, you also will have Medicare coverage. Um, now, your, your Medicare premium will be uh, paid directly to Medicare if your monthly payment from Social Security stops, because that's where they withhold the premium when you're getting a, uh, a check from Social Security each month. But the 93 period still uh, continues. After the trial work period, you will have Medicare coverage for those 93 months. Um, and that's hospital insurance and outpatient coverage. Um, and if you're enrolled in, in other um, Medicare plans for prescription medicine, those types of plans, that, that would include that as well. Also, if you get a benefit from um, Social Security, I'm trying to advance the slide here just to, <clears throat> to make sure I'm on the information I want to present to you. Um, I guess I'll add to that. Continuation of Medicare uh, will, will even go beyond the 93 months if the person uh, is still considered medically disabled, even though their benefits are no longer payable because of their employment, they would be able to continue the Medicare um, now at a higher premium. So essentially the Medicare Part A that was uh, previously free would need to be premium Part A, and there's $450 required, the premium payment on that. Um, but at any rate, that could continue beyond the 93 months I just mentioned. So Medicare can be extended if your benefit stopped strictly due to work and you're still medically disabled with Social Security. There's a long outlook, a long period of time that Medicare could continue, I think is the point here. Um, and Medicare will continue, um, I'm sorry, Medicaid, the state version of Medicare, uh, for those that get the SSI benefit, will continue as long as you're medically disabled, even if you're no longer getting SSI monthly cash payments with salaries as high as $36,000 here in Arizona, you could continue to get access, we call Medicaid here in Arizona, even if you uh, no longer receive that SSI payment, supplemental security income payment, uh, as long as you were still medically disabled. In other words, they hadn't reviewed your medical condition and decided you were no longer meeting the medical definition uh, for Social Security. So reporting work, very important. Uh, when you start a new job, report it to Social Security so they can document it um, and explain any of these things we just mentioned that may apply to you that could be an advantage in receiving payments. The SSA 821 form, that work activity report is how you do it. Uh, there's a wage reporting service. If you have your personal My Social Security account, just much easier to report the wages to Social Security that way. So we always want to remind people that that's available. Um, and I'm going to stop there. I'm going to run out of time if I go into it anymore. I know there were some questions about the actual application process, but I think I'd rather take the specific questions than go into what I may have had planned here. My contact information is on the last slide, J-O-H-N. I spell my name John. I know I go by Jack. Sorry, that can be confusing. But my email address is J-O-H-N dot P, like Paul, dot B-U-R-N-S, 
which is my last name. So john.p.burns at ssa.gov. And um, I think we've we've still got time for questions. Okay. Let's um, have some raised hands so we can pick. We have one raised hand from Mary S. Great, Mary. Yes, hi. So first of all, um, John, thank you so much for, for, for coming and doing this. You're from my home state of Arizona. Um, am, I, am I unmuted? Because it yes. says that my microphone yes, is muted. T- okay. We can hear you. <laughs> it says safe driving mode. Yeah, blind people and driving. That's fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yes. So, But I, I want to make this quick. So my, my really quick question to you. First of all, if you would please repeat your email at the end or if somebody would put that in the chat, that would be great. I will um, put it in right now, Mary. Okay, great. And second of all, really quickly about uh, reporting for the subsidy uh, when working as well as reporting when you're done working. Um, are there are those forms like online that you could fill out or are they PDF forms that you have to fill out and print out? You know, um, I, have to, I have to be honest, I haven't done one of those forms, actually completed them. I've, I'm always referring people to the form. So I believe it's still uh, print and, and complete, like with pen and ink. I don't think it's a mm. PDF fillable, which is, Uh-oh. when you think about it, probably not a very yeah, hard thing for Social Security to do. But I just don't think we've gotten to that point. Um, okay. But you can call and report your work by telephone. There's no strict requirement. Um, and you could say, I want to actually complete the work report. Um, and, and, and we can assist you that way. Okay, and then stopping employment because I I I know you know people can maybe just write a letter saying I've, I'm no longer working, yada 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 on X and Y date, and then signature it. Is that still accepted? Absolutely, and and I always my biggest pet peeve um, over the years I worked at Social Security is when I discovered one of someone from our staff was not giving a receipt of a report of work or work stoppage e- because that's the key to determining whether there was a delay in social security processing your report of work that caused an overpayment or assuming the person never reported their work. So having the receipt, uh, which is routine, I mean, it's part of what we would expect the representative to do, but I always just tell the person, Hey, just remind the representative that you need a receipt of that because that's what they're supposed to be doing. Okay. Awesome. John, thank you so much. I will be in contact with you for other questions. Oh, very, you're very welcome. I look forward to talking to you. Thank you, Mary, for asking that excellent question. And just to let everyone know, we will, as a team, make sure that we post helpful information on the ACB community uh, Facebook page. But we are super excited to announce that Health Checkup ACB does have now a private group where we will be able to post uh, the three brochures, Jack, that you have shared with Jay. And it would be an honor to um, have you a part of that um, discussion further. So we'll post all that on ACB community Facebook page. Jerry, this Thanks, is Daryl. Can I interrupt for a second? Oh, yes. Yes, Daryl. Okay, I'm going to keep the stream going. This is such an informative call and there's nothing scheduled after us. So we're going to keep, we're going to keep streaming. Oh, wonderful. So our ACB Thanks, listeners radio. Thank you, Darrow. Thank you for everybody. We're going to keep chatting. Let's do it. Let's chat SSA. Any more questions? Hands, Dan, Jay? There is a hand raised. Derek's iPhone has raised its hand. All right, Derek. Yes, hi. Good afternoon, and Jack. Thank you very much for a very enlightening uh, conversation. 
Um, my question is, I am 63 years of age. I'm blind and I'm on SSDI, which I've had for a number of years. Let's assume I would somehow go back to work right now. Um, considering I'm only two years from where I would normally be receiving as a, a sighted individual, my uh, my Medicare and uh, S uh, Social Security. Uh, if considering I'm already receiving it as a blind person, what happens if I go back to work when I turn 65, going on the assumption that I'm earning more than the SGA? Okay, great question. So uh, I think I need to ask you one question to be able to give uh, a better answer, if you would. Um, have you returned to work previously uh, after first receiving that Social Security disability payment? No, I have not. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward then. You're, you're going to be able to work um, at full-time uh, levels of earnings for a year, as we mentioned there, the nine-month trial work period, and three grace months would be paid if you continued to work. Um, you'll, you'll be subject to the trial work period that following three-year extended period of eligibility, where depending on your level of work, the benefit may stop if you're earning over uh, $2,110 a month or less. If you're earning less, then the benefit can continue. So that may be the outlook for you. Um, if you're 63 right now, I think people, uh, let's see, born in 1954 or turning 66 this year or last year. I, I can't do the math quick enough in my head. You're, I, I'm going to assume you're, you're probably born in um, 57. 57. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, correct. Okay. So 1957, if you're born in that year, that means your full retirement age with Social Security is uh, 66 plus six months, so 66 and a half. So until you get to 66 and a half, you're still receiving a disability payment from Social Security. If you're um, you know, working under those rules, those employment supports we just talked about, when you get to the 66 and a half, your benefit will, con will actually convert to a full retirement benefit at the same rate, uh, fairly transparent uh, when it comes to, or, or seamless, I guess I should say, when it comes to how you see it, it'll just be the same payment moving forward, but now it's going to be a retirement payment. And at that point, all of those rules about how much you can earn will be eliminated and you would be able to have an unlimited salary for an unlimited time and receive all the payments that were due, but they would be retirement payments at that point. Oh, great. Thank you. That also helps me knowing it's 66 and a half as opposed to what I thought was 65. Okay, that's very helpful. You, you answered perfectly. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other raised hands? Yes, we have a raised hand from Abraham. Hi, Jack. Thanks for the call. Uh, two quick questions. First one regarding the online account. When I went there, I was advised that I needed to go to a local office to get uh, unlock code to be able to access my account. Because of the coronavirus, is, still, is this still a requirement? Good question. Okay, so the, uh, without getting into all the uh, you know technical arena of things that can happen with online accounts, you can imagine Social Security is going to have an online account that's pretty darn secure and requires um, that you, you know, 
take every step in the way that they want you to, or they're just going to lock you out and not allow you to register. Unfortunately, I mean, there's, there's bad in that, I guess, in that some of us aren't able to easily register, but the good is that it's keeping out imposters and, 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 you know, if we don't do things correctly, it won't let us register. So I think the, um, do you already, can I ask one question? Do you already have an account at some point? Did you have an account with social security? No. When I wanted to create okay. one, I, I had to go through that process. Okay, so uh, I'll say a couple of things. I've been told uh, by service representatives that I work with that one of the uh, things that may cause you to get uh, or that may prevent you from registering for your online account is that the address you're using, if it's not the address that the motor vehicle department has on file, um, if you've ever registered there for an ID or if you had a driver's license at some point, whatever they have is generally what Social Security is trying to match when you're entering a, a mailing address. That's just one pointer. may not help you in your situation necessarily, but just so that you're, you're aware of it. Uh, the other thing, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I was I, just going to say the other. Th- I was trying to go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> There's a delay, so we're talking over each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go since it's your question. I know. I understand exactly why I have to do it because my employer's uh, insurance company got hacked and all my pers- and all of our company's personal information got released to the public. So I understand why it's locked out. I just want to know about the requirement if I still have to go into the office to get the unlock code. Okay. Um, yeah. And again, there's a number of different reasons why uh, you may not be able to register. What you just mentioned sounds like it might be that you put a freeze on your credit with the credit bureaus or your company may have encouraged you to do that, or there's some form of that that's preventing Social Security from verifying answers to what they call out-of-pocket questions, so credit history questions. Social Security uses your uh, uses the credit bureaus to kind of do a check of your answers on credit questions uh, to identify you. So if that's not working the way uh, they have it designed to work, that could be the reason they said it's easier for you to just go in person to an office. And of course, we're not seeing people right now in person. So that means you would have to wait until we're able to open again. However, I'm going to just add one more thing here. Social Security is implementing alternate ways to authenticate an account holder, meaning if you uh, are able to and willing to, you may be able to use something called ID.me, which is a federal government database that allows them to look at other federal government agencies where you do have ID established and pull that into your social security account to authenticate you. The other thing they'll do is allow you to take a selfie and a picture of your ID, whether that's a motor vehicle ID or a passport, and utilize that to authenticate you. And I'm just mentioning those, not because that's going to guarantee everyone will be able to register, but they're offering more options to authenticate you. So you may want to revisit the uh, website just to see if any of those might work. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your question. Uh, this is Daryl. I have a couple questions that came into me ahead of time. Uh, my, a lot of people are, uh, I think, afraid of the application process, to be honest. And now I'm talking only about blind and low vision people at this point. Could you describe a little bit about what criterias are used? You've explained clearly what the definition in Social Security land is of, of blindness. But I know a lot of people that are members of the American Council of Blind, 
aren't totally blind. They're low vision. And people hear that, oh, I have to go see a social security doctor who works for social security. I don't want to have to do any of that. Could, could you describe a little bit of what goes into your end of looking over applications from blind and low vision people? Right. No, that's a good question. I appreciate it. Um, well, I would tell you in, in my career at Social Security in the years that I provided service, direct service, where I was authorizing claims, um, my my background was not with the medical determination because of your local Social Security office does initial eligibility, but then they actually send the claim to a medical disability determination services component of social security where that's the medically trained staff that will work on the medical decision. So there's a little bit of a, a, a separation there in the two duties, initial claim, and then the medical determination. <clears throat> so I don't think I would have that much to offer you there, but I'll, I'll make some points that might be helpful. First of all, the initial determination in the local office is where we're going to determine, has this person worked and paid the social security tax long enough and recently enough to, to be eligible at least for a payment if they're approved? That's what we do. Or if the answer is no, is this a person in a low income and resource household that meets the uh, needs-based requirements so that they could get a payment through the SSI program? And so once the answer to those two questions uh, is determined, the initial eligibility that is, we're going to send that off to the medical, uh, I call it the medical office, but it's the medically trained staff at Social Security that's going to do the determination of disability. Uh, the medical requirements will be reviewed and looked at. So does someone need to um, have total blindness? Well, no, as we mentioned, the definition is really looking at um, the better eye, the vision in the better eye um, can't be more uh, acute than 2200. Of course, um, we're talking about situations where you could have someone that's totally blind in one eye or meets the definition in one eye, but doesn't in the other eye. And I think that's a common scenario I experienced as a, uh, uh, a claims representative with Social Security in that part of my career. So I, th that's probably almost too obvious. You probably could, you could come up with that on your own. But uh, there are other variations of that where um, the visual acuity may not be uh, meeting the requirement of blindness with social security. However, the big, however, is always, what are some of the other, uh, medical conditions that that person deals with that can affect their work? And that's where I would always recommend to someone, make sure you're listing all of the things, all of the health related things that could interfere with your work. Because if you're not meeting the definition of blindness, but you also have, um, you know, problems with uh, diabetes, or maybe you've got, uh, you're on dialysis, or maybe you've got uh, a heart condition that, that really is limiting your activity and work. Those are all part of the consideration, Call of part of what they would call uh, a combination of conditions rather than one specific condition that you would consider your, your, um, your main issue that affects your work, but how do those others, when considered together with the main condition, how does that, what's the outlook in that claim specifically? Um, and and you, you mentioned, um, Daryl, in your question about how some individuals will mention that they have to have an appointment with a social security doctor. And of course, um, this is a very limited situation where there there wasn't adequate evidence, or sometimes there isn't any medical evidence to be considered for the claim. And those are situations where they would ask someone to see uh, a doctor that was appointed by Social Security to 
gather some evidence, make a, an evaluation and, and offer that for the for purposes of the claim. So is it a standard on every claim that someone would have to have that uh, visit with a social security doctor? Absolutely not. It's, it's uh, depending on the circumstances, of course. So again, I, I think my emphasis that I always make with people is um, if you, if you have medical evidence, first of all, it's not a requirement that you obtain it and forward it to social security. Social security has uh, a, a process in place where you're telling Social Security where you were treated and they're going after those records. That's part of the application process. So you don't have to be uh, tasked with getting the medical records and forwarding them to Social Security. Secondly, um, remember the 12 month rule. You, you don't have to be out of work for 12 months uh, or have the disability for 12 months. That just needs to be the prognosis when you're being evaluated. So if you're talking to a doctor, ask the doctor, maybe that doctor has worked with folks previously that have gotten social security disability. The diagnosis from the doctor should address your ability to work because that's the social security definition of disability. Inability to perform substantial gainful activity for 12 months or longer. Doctors that are familiar with social security disability know that and the language they use in the diagnosis can be very specific to your ability to perform work and that can be helpful in your claim. So, um, and, I, and I could go on and on about, uh, you know, different uh, scenarios and things that I've seen with, with doctors um, that just weren't specific enough in their diagnosis because they weren't aware that the person um, really needed that focus on work in the diagnosis. Okay, very good. Uh, Dan, do we have any more hands raised? Thank you. Yes, we have a hand raised from Janine. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you, Janine? Good, um, my name is Janine. I'm calling from Florida. So I have a question about Medicare um, and Social Security and Medicare and the difference between Medicaid and Medicare. Um, so why do you need to be disabled for two years to get Medicare? care and then what is shared cost and what are the ways to get around shared cost okay so kind of good question questions. they're big questions i got big questions right. you know i would have to janine i have to be honest i i have heard the term quite a bit shared cost but i, I would have to actually re research that i'd have to look that up and and see specifically what that refers to um okay. so i but, can but let me well go ahead yeah you, you could explain what that is I can tell you it's only in some states. Right. Okay. So shared costs, when you have Medicaid, you have to, okay, so it's a shared cost. So you get so much money from SSDI or SSI, whatever you get, um, and then you have Medicaid kind of, sort of. So you kind of have insurance, but you basically have to spend X amount of dollars that month before you'll be covered for the insurance to cover you. So it's kind of okay. tricky. Um, so that's shared cost, but it's pretty much like a hundred dollars less than your whole total month budget. So okay. I just was like, how do we get around that? And they're like, well, you could go to the emergency room. It's like, well, I'm not going to the emergency room for an earache. Like, so yeah. Right. So I am. Um, so how do you, yeah. So, but then Anyway, so let's talk about Medicare and why you need to be disabled for two years to get that and how, like, how long does it take to right. switch? Yeah. Right. Okay. So great questions, Janine. First of all, when you talk about things like shared cost, coverages that you get from Medicare or Medicaid, um, generally, most of us at Social Security are not 
that's not our realm that we are familiar with and can really have any expertise in. So I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, go into that because I simply don't have the expertise, but I will offer you an ex, uh, a resource. Um, every state has what's called a state health insurance assistance program. It's funded by Medicare and it's also funded by Medicaid or uh, the department that handles Medicaid within the state. So here in Arizona, we don't have shared costs or those types of things. Um, so that's why uh, that's uh, one reason why I'm not okay. familiar with it. Yeah. Um, but what you should do with those types of questions is contact. And these folks are generally welcoming. They're looking for people to contact them because that's their function in the community. But they're the, the state health insurance assistance program or the ship they're called, um, I, I, embarrassingly, I didn't find the chat. Maybe it's because of the, uh, because I'm sharing uh, the sh the chat isn't showing up. So I wanted to put my email and I could put the ship, uh, national number in there too. But if you look maybe the for, chat's turned off, you don't know. Sometimes that's blind people. We don't use it. That's okay. Why. So maybe it's not enabled. And when, when I said I would send my email to chat, I could get him from, why don't I do this? Uh, if Jay is willing and able to, or anyone else uh, on the hosts there uh, moderating, if they're able to send additional information out, I could get it to you through them. Okay. Um, but that, Fabulous. yeah, that state health insurance assistance program, uh, generally by county, they have an office and they're, uh, they're experts in Medicare coverages, what Medicare plans are out there, things like Medicaid. Um, they're familiar with that stuff and they're going to be able to get you better uh, information and resources. So I would recommend that. As far as okay. Medicare and Medicaid and how it, uh, it works in conjunction with Social Security, well, Social Security requires um, a disability insurance beneficiary. That's the, if you've worked contributed to Social Security, and then you got the disability payment, SSDI, we call that. They require the person to have gotten that benefit for 24 months before they're eligible for Medicare. Why? Well, we'd have to look at a history of the legislation and Congress and why they did that. I believe part of it has to do with the fact that um, not all people are going to be receiving those disability benefits for the long term. So after two years, they consider that person is probably going to need the medical insurance um, because it's probably a longer term mm -hmm. condition. However, let's just say it doesn't work for all of us. And I wish there was a better system in place because 24 months of social security benefits is mm -hmm. a time period where many people need that Medicare and they just simply right. aren't eligible yet. Right. Um, now, again, that would be um, a conversation to have with the state health ship. insurance assistance program that ship because they're going to be familiar with what the other options may be within the community to help you during that time period. And access is what they call Medicaid here in Arizona is also something that, that SHIP handles. They're, they're more familiar with, with how that operates. But generally, Medicaid is only going to come into play automatically if you receive a Social Security uh, benefit called SSI, Supplemental Security Income. And if you're, um, you, you would have to be in that low income and resource category where you'd normally be eligible for Medicaid, and then they're going to deem you eligible because you're getting that SSI supplemental security income payment. Right. Um, and then the coverages and other options, you know, for, for, for um, additional coverages that go along with Medicaid and Medicare, those right. Medicare plans, those, those um, they call them uh, dual eligible plans where if you have Medicare and Medicaid, you can get much better coverage and services and all of that. Again, uh, not generally social security's realm. So I don't want to, um, you know, steer you in the wrong direction. I would no, recommend cool. the, the ship is generally the resource for that stuff. 
Thank you so much. I just kind of wanted to know whatever, like I, yeah. And if you're on SSDI, then you can get a medic. That's when you get the shared costs because you're not on SSI. So they're different. Like all the researches I've done. So I just kind of wanted to know um, the the switching, but cool. You answered my question. And just for those who didn't know, like I was kind of putting it out there because I know you have to go through social security to get started on that stuff. So thanks for being here. Thanks for answering. Thanks, Terry and the team and Dan. So yeah, thanks. Thank you so much, Janine. Thank you. Thank you. I'm learning here myself. Bye, guys. That's the beauty of it. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Just a quick um, question. Um, Any more hands, Dan? First, I'm going to just say really quickly, in Florida, the ship is serving health insurance needs of elders. It's part of the Florida Department of Elder Affairs. Are they going to help you even if you're not an elder? Um, My understanding of the ship program is it's um, it's part of the uh, outreach that CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the federal agency, uh, offers within the community because they don't have a, a local so- office like Social Security has a local office. So they employ these uh, ship offices or organizations to handle Medicare, whether it's related to a disability or whether it's related to uh, aged Medicare, either one, they would be able to, they'd be equipped to, to help with those situations. So that's my understanding of it. Yes. Well, sounds like we have another opportunity for a great call. <laughs> okay, I would have- recommend, you know, I would recommend that because the, the, the folks that I work with here in Arizona are, uh, you know, heads above other types of services in terms of their knowledge of, of those uh, Medicare and Medicaid coverages and their willingness to help. So what national, uh, federal agency is responsible for ship again? Is that CCM? Well, it's, it's a, it's a combination of state funding through your, uh, the office that handles Medicaid in your state and the federal government agency, CMS centers for Medicaid and Medicaid, excuse me, Medicaid and Medicare services, which falls under health and human services. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Jack. And thank you, Janine. And thank you, Dan, so much. Um, How are we doing on hands and time? We have one hand from Mary. Okay. Is there anybody else? I know Mary's asked a question. Any other hands up? No, there are no other hands up. Okay. Hey, Mary. I'm just going to make it really quick. The chat screen does not appear on Zoom. I don't know why it normally does. Yeah, we might have turned it off by accident. But we will uh, promise you we'll get you the information. I promise. Cool. Okay. Just send it to me. All right. Thanks. I'm going to try disabling the screen sharing, see if it comes up then. Um, I don't know. I'm not a technical oh. person with Zoom. But Jack, I, will I stop promise sharing. you. Yeah. No, I promise you we will get your information posted in every location for our community to be able to reach out to you. Um, and on that note, we greatly, greatly appreciate you. Um, there are Definitely. three brochures that you shared with Jay that I'm going to make sure we post those. Um, are those only good for this year? Are there going to be new information updates on those brochures that you sent the handouts? Yeah. In general, the numbers like the SGA number and, and um, those, that type of information is going to move upward each year. So 2021 is probably not going to be available. Generally our uh, publications office is not going to have those right away in January. So I would say that you're, you know, you're fine to use those until the new information is available. Okay, wonderful. So I just want to remind everyone, if you have a question, 
um, on the community call information and also getting ready to be announced on ACB radio is our health checkup ACB at gmail.com. You are always welcome to email us on the team and we are always listening to you because this information we bring to you is from the needs and ask of the community. So again, that's health checkup ACB at gmail.com. It's the name of the call plus ACB at gmail.com. And if you're on Facebook, we will be proud to announce today that we have created a Facebook group. It is available to find public, but it is private. So once you join that group, um, we want to create a safe, respectful, and welcoming environment. But as discussions may get a little heavy with different topics, we wanted to make sure we created that environment. Any more hands up for last time? And Jack, thank you so much. I have no idea what time it is, but thank you so much for your time. <laughs> no, and, my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Yes. Yes, thank Jay, you very much. Jay, do you have any questions? Not right this time. Okay. And I know that luckily I live in where he, uh, the state there, he helps out at. But I'm sure it's all statewide also, the same information. <laughs> Okay. Hello. Well, yeah, I guess we're all Hello? set then, aren't we? Yeah. Thank Dara. you. Thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. And I'm going to uh, stop the ACB radio stream. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody. Okay, thank the- you all. Thank you, everybody.